You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Today I want to talk about a number of topics that I can bring together under the heading, I think, of analogy or analogical language in Thomas Aquinas. And lest this sound like a kind of peripheral or grammatical topic, I think you'll see in terms of the things that I want to take up how fundamental it is and how substantive a notion uh, this is. First of all, what Thomas would call our natural mode of knowing. Now, it's pretty clear from what I've said about the difference between philosophical discourse and theological discourse, at least I hope it's clear, is that philosophical discourse ultimately has to be grounded in starting points that are available and knowable in principle to anybody. So there's nothing, as we saw, private or special about the beginning points of philosophy. Now, there goes along with this a sense that Thomas has as to how it is that the human mind naturally progresses from not knowing to knowing, from knowing a little bit to knowing more, and so forth. And I want to talk a bit about that. When he is beginning the study of the natural world, Thomas likes to cite Aristotle's view that children call all men daddy and all women mommy. Huh? And he suggests that this is a using of a certain kind of designation in a confused way, which is only later clarified. Huh? He's not necessarily suggesting that every female or every male is a parent. Huh? Well, he says that, but a daddy is someone who looks like his paternal parent, and a mommy is someone who looks like his mother. And gradually, out of this confused way of using the term of lots of people, the child comes to see, well, no, that's my daddy and my mommy, and there's a very special relation. Not every male is a daddy and not every female is a mommy, so that the movement is from a kind of confusion to clarity. So Thomas likes that example. Children call all men father, all women mother, and only later do they distinguish clearly between their parents and other adult, let's say, human being. Another example that Thomas invokes is this, that if you see something at a great distance, you know, something's there. Huh? And then as you move towards it, or it moves towards you, uh, you say, well, it's not a tumbling, tumbling weed, let's say. It's alive. It's moving itself. And it is an animal. Huh? And it's my mother-in-law. Let's say you move through these stages, and you have these layers of understanding or grasp of what the thing is. It's the same thing you're talking about, but from confused through progressively more specific recognition, you come to know what it is as such. Now, those are simply examples, and I haven't conveyed them to you with the skill that I had hoped to, but perhaps you get the point. Now, what Thomas is doing is suggesting that that's the way the human mind works. I mean, we move from generalizations, from great global grasp of things, confused grasp of things, and only with time and effort do we arrive at specific knowledge of the kinds of things. And this is something which is manifested in that opening book of natural philosophy.
philosophy, the book of Aristotle is called the physics. No? Tafusica, natural things, would be the Latin way of putting it, physical things, natural things. And the metaphor behind that is things that were born. No? Fuen and nascor in the Latin, they suggest someone's being born in the sense that that would have force, and that is used to cover anything that comes to be as a result of a change, huh? anything that comes into being. Now, when Thomas suggests that we begin with very general or confused knowledge of, let's say, the things around us, he is not suggesting that there aren't rewards to be had at these levels of generality. For example, in beginning natural science, what, what Thomas, following Aristotle, is asking himself, in effect, is this. What are the characteristics that would be true of every physical object? And by a physical object, he means something that has come to be as a result of change, as the term would suggest. Is there something we could say about anything whatsoever, insofar as it has come to be as a result of a change, that would be true? It's not going to be very profound if it's true of all of them indiscriminately, but it would be a gain of a certain sort from which we could move on to more precise and specific knowledge. This is Thomas's understanding not only of the procedure in our knowledge of physical objects, but generally speaking in our knowledge. And a feature of this is that our thinking is based on our sense perception and our ideas are formulated on the basis of our sense experience. So that the connatural object, as we put the, the, the object that fits such a mind as ours, will be the nature of the physical object. Now, the importance of that for talking about theology, whether philosophical or scriptural, is something to which we will come back. But for now, let's just look very rapidly let me pay off rather rapidly what I'm saying here about the way in which there would be an analysis of physical objects which is on a level of great generality, but which nonetheless has its rewards. What we need, of course, is a specific example. We're always going to deal with specific examples, but is there something we could say about an example that wouldn't be restricted to it as this kind of example or that, but merely as an example of something that has come to be as a result of a change? And what is put before us is, well, take an example, like a kid learning how to play the piano. And so the change we have, Orville becomes a pianist. Huh? This is the change. Now, starting with that, we're trying to say, what could we say about that that would turn out to be generalizable over any example of a change? And what emerges from the analysis is that you can express that change in a number of ways, of course. You can say Orville becomes a pianist, or the non-pianist becomes a pianist, or the non-piano-playing Orville becomes a pianist. Huh? And you figure, what's the point of that? The point of it is that not that we have three different changes, we've got three ways of talking about the same change. And there's yet another way in which we can talk about that same change, the three examples that I gave are all in the form of A becomes B. But sometimes we say from A, B comes to B. So the question is, could we translate all of those possibilities that I just gave into this other form? Could we say from the non-pianist, the pianist comes to B? Why not? 
could we say from non-piano playing little Orville, pianist comes to be? Why not? But could we say from Orville, the pianist comes to be? And through verbal variations of this kind, what is put before us is the suggestion that not every grammatical subject expressing the change, this very simple example of change that we're talking about, not every grammatical subject of the change picks out the subject of the change. What is the subject of what we know what a grammatical subject is, anything that fits in the position to which predicates are being attributed. But what do we mean by subject of a change? That to which the change is attributed and which persists throughout the chain, which survives the chain. So the reason why we wouldn't want to say that from Orville the pianist comes to be is that that locution tends to suggest that the price of becoming a pianist is to cease to be Orville. Huh? Well, who's going to be the pianist? So we realize that there is a subject that survives the chain, and it acquires a characteristic, being able to play the piano, which it lacked in the first place. Huh? Now, this is step one Thomas puts forward as the analysis of physical objects. This is the least you could say about anything that comes to be as a result of a chain, but it's something you could say about everything that comes to be as a result of the chain. You built it off or you derived it from the analysis of a particular example, but you see it as generalizable across the whole natural world. This is something that would be true of anything whatsoever. Now, given the view that Thomas has as to how we proceed in knowledge, this is, of course, just the first step towards coming to knowledge of the things of this world. But he thinks it's going to be the case that we will, first of all, try to come up with truths which are general in that way and only gradually come to more and more specific kinds of truths. But this analysis, I mention it, not just to regale you with how things go in natural science for Thomas, because this is an absolutely fundamental source of Thomas's language and his way of using language throughout all of his philosophical writing and all of his theological writing as well. Now, that's a big promise, but I'll try to pay off it. But before I do that, let me look at that analysis again and now express it in a way that may be familiar to you. It may not, but I'll make it familiar to you. It is possible to take another sort of example of a change. Aristotle suggests this. Someone is whittling wood. Huh? And when he begins whittling, it has whatever shape it naturally has. But after he whittles, let's say, here it is, President Bush. Huh? He's made a simulacrum of the president. So here you have a subject, wood, which from not being shaped in a certain way has come to be shaped in this new way. What's important about that is that the terms that are now used in talking about change are, in the Greek, they were hule for matter or the subject, and morphe for the form or shape, and the lack was stereosis. Huh? Now, what this comes into Latin as is materia, forma, and privatio, or matter, form, and privation. Now, these terms are taken to be pinned on the first analysis that we would make of something that has come to be as a result of a change. 
And the language that is used there, matter and form, this is my point in dwelling on this now, we will find that the terms matter and form have a career throughout the writing and thinking of Thomas Aquinas, throughout his philosophy and his theology as well. So that what we're going to find here is the way in which the most abstract and abstruse of topics will be anchored in an analysis which is as available to us as thinking about little Orville learning how to play the piano. Now, in trying to convey to you the way in which Thomas uses language in such a way that terminology that is anchored in a very simple kind of analysis, that terminology will be used in progressively more difficult inquiries until we will find God spoken of as pure form or pure act at the end. And this will be a kind of Ariadne's thread for you classicists that will lead us from these very abstruse and difficult and remote, as it might seem, discussions will lead us back by steps to the most obvious kind of analysis of all. And the language tracking along that is going to be, as I say, a kind of chain that will enable us to return if we find something up here difficult to understand, we can track back through what it depends on and relies on, and the very language is going to suggest that to you. Example, when one moves on from just talking about things that have come to be as a result of a chain to talking about the difference, say, between an incidental change and a substantial change, what does that mean? When a subject changes color, or when it learns how to play the piano, when it changes place, when it changes size, the subject persists throughout those changes. The subject of change is that to which those new characterizations are attributed. But what about the subject itself? What a little Orville came to be, too. And alas, there will come a time when little Orville ceases to be. So the question is, how can we handle this more dramatic kind of change, not an incidental change, or a change of the subject in this or that characterization, but the change of the subject from not being to being, or from being to not being. That's a far more dramatic change. Why are we dwelling on it? Because what we see when we follow this kind of analysis is that the terms matter and form are used of the analysis of the coming into being of the substance, though they have to change meaning in part, in order to do that. The subject of a substantial change, the coming into being of something like Orville, can't be another something, because then Orville would simply be an incidental property of that underlying something. So if there really are substances, and there are, and they really come into being, and they do, then there must be a subject of that change which is not a substance, autonomous thing in itself. That, I'm sure, is more obscure than it need be, but all we want it for is this, the terms matter and form being pushed along to new but connected meanings as this analysis goes on. And this continues in the area of natural science. When Aristotle and Thomas turn to a discussion of the human soul, soul and then the human soul as an instance of soul, what will they say? Well, a quick answer to that is, the soul is the substantial form of a physically organized body. 
So we've got that same language that's coming over. Not all forms are souls. Not all forms are principles of life. But nonetheless, the term is kept, and its meaning is slightly altered because you want to keep the similarity with the things that were analyzed first, and of course, recognize their differences as well. This terminology, we might say, even before you get around to talking about the difference between incidental change and substantial change, form, morphe in Greek, forma in Latin, means what shape would mean for us, the external contours of a thing. So that when you talk about a billiard ball moving from place A to place B, and you say it's acquired a new shape, I mean, there's a movement from the more obvious sense of the term to something related, but not exactly the same. So a terminology, which is derived from a very simple example, matter and form, has, this is my point, will have a long career in the philosophical analyses of Thomas Aquinas. And this is a, another way in which philosophical discourse is anchored in things that are available to anyone whatsoever. The way of describing this sort of extension of the meaning of the term or connected meaning, the term that Thomas uses for it is to say that some terms are common to lots of things, but analogically common to them. What does that mean? This is a contrast between certain shared or common terms that have exactly the same meaning as they are attributed to a multiplicity, let's say, of individuals. The term human being, the phrase, or the term man, has exactly the same meaning as predicated of any individual human being. So we'll call it, what, a univocal term. We have the same term said of many things, exactly the same meaning as said of them all. There are other terms, of course, which are shared by lots of things, but if we ask why, we don't seem to have any explanation in terms of what the terms mean. So that if we say that Cinderella went to the ball and danced on the balls of her feet and the next day went to a ball game, we've got a term that is showing up all over the place. And if we ask ourselves, what is the single meaning of ball that would enable us to understand the dance, the bottom of her feet, and the thing hit out of the park, rarely, at, let's say, White Sox Field, what would be the single meaning of ball? And eventually we would have to say there isn't any. These are just different uses of the same word, but there isn't any connection between the meanings of the word. I hope that example if that one doesn't, we can find others and say that when hammering nails, the carpenter hit his nail and now he's dancing around in the yard, swearing and cursing and so forth. What is the relationship between nail as the things on the end of your fingers on the one hand and a steel fastener that you drive into lumber? And again, I'm assuming there isn't any connection. I think I'm right. And we'll say, well, it just happens that the same word is used in these quite different meanings. And the term that covers that is, well, it's an equivocal use of the term. Don't look for any connection between the meanings, because there isn't any. Yeah? So we've got those two possibilities, a shared term that has an identical meaning in every use, the univocal term, and a shared term that has, there's no connection 
between the many meanings that it has, and we'll call that an equivocal term. When Thomas talks about the feature of his language that I've been drawing attention to, he says, we will call that analogical predication, and it is midway between univocity and equivocity. Huh? Okay. So what I'm drawing attention to now is this, the vocabulary, the philosophical vocabulary of Thomas Aquinas can be characterized as analogical. What do we mean by an analogical term? It is a term which is shared by many, but which has different but related senses or meaning in each of its uses. And whenever Thomas, or indeed Aristotle, brings up this subject, there is one example that they're absolutely sure to use. And that is the way in which healthy, the term healthy, is predicated of, let's say, your dog, dog food, and your dog's coat, huh? his fur. And you say, that's a healthy coat of fur the dog has. Or this is healthy, you're pouring it into the dish, this is healthy food. And then you say, the dog's healthy. So here you have a shared term. Healthy is used of the dog, of the dog food, and of his coat. And the question is, do we want to say that it has exactly the same meaning in all of these uses? And a moment's reflection indicate, well, it can't be exactly the same use. On the other hand, we certainly wouldn't want to say there is no connection between these uses, as would be the case if it were an equivocal term. So how are we going to handle this kind of a term? Well, we're going to say there's an ordered set of meanings with such a term. One of the meanings is primary and the others are parasitic on it. What is primary in the case of healthy is the condition, the physical condition of the animal. And for Aristotle and Thomas and for Shakespeare, that would have meant a proportion among the four humors. Huh? When you say that the dog food is healthy, what you're saying is it's a cause of this condition in the animal or it preserves this condition in the animal. And when you say its coat is healthy, it's a sign of this condition in the animal. So that condition in the animal, healthy in that sense, is regulative of these other uses of the term healthy. So it's an ordered set of meaning. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is this, about Thomas's philosophical vocabulary in all its amplitude, it is made up of very few words. One of the astounding things about Thomas, I think it makes it easy to learn how to read him in Latin, is that he makes do with a very limited vocabulary. And we might just think that he's not much of a stylist and doesn't realize that there are all kinds of synonyms and so forth. There's method in that. There's a purpose in it. And what it is, is this, that he is building up an ordered set of meanings for this minimal vocabulary of his, which will connect the later and perhaps somewhat esoteric uses of the term with the earlier and finally with the primary meaning of the term. And that's the point I wanted to make with respect to form and matter. The first way of getting hold of it is in terms of the analysis that I suggested in terms of 
first of all, a little kid learning how to play the piano, or someone whittling with wood, even better, so we can get shape and matter, subject in the sense of matter. Those terms, fixed there, understood there, in a very easily accessible example, those terms will acquire many, many connected meanings later on. But it's an ordered set that will ultimately be related to this primary and rather simple understanding of the term. There are other such terms. There are very few of them, in a sense. As I say, the key terms in Thomas are very limited in number, but they are extremely various in terms of the meanings that they have. Nor is this just a non-random kind of plurality. It is a artful accretion of meanings on the part of the same term that connects later and difficult discussion to earlier and simpler ones. What I'm emphasizing now is meant to guard us against thinking of the language of Thomas as somehow a jargon, as if it's some kind of technical vocabulary that we just learn and that has no relationship to the ordinary uses of terms. If there's anything that characterizes his language as a philosopher and also, as I will show, as a theologian, it is taking terms as you find them and figuring out meanings and understanding of them that are accessible to anybody and then going on from there, the most fundamental in the sense of the most accessible. Now, of course, this presupposes that some things are more easily known to us than others. And the point of the remarks at the beginning of this lecture is that confused knowledge is something that comes first for us. But insofar as you're moving in a kind of ordered declension, from confusion to clarity, from the more general to the less general, that doesn't mean you're not learning things on each of these levels. You're learning things that are generally true, less generally true, more specifically true, and then quite specifically true. But there are truths on all of these levels, and there's a kind of, as I suggest, accretion or accumulation of understanding, which is tracked by hanging on to the same term as you're moving along. Let me give you an example of another pair that will show up. And if you just, for example, if someone just said to you, in Thomas Aquinas, we have the acceptance of the hylomorphic theory of physical objects. You might figure, wow, hylomorphic, what does that mean? But it's just put forward like that as a bit of information. And we don't understand what the analysis is behind it to claim that anything that has come to be as a result of a change is a compound of matter and form of a subject and a new characteristic, it's going to seem like just jargon to us. So too, we might be told act and potency are key concepts in Thomas Aquinas. We go, act and potency, what, what does he mean? Oh, it's very different. This is the way those terms come into currency. When you're talking about the subject of a change, and you're talking about the change is such that from not being this, it comes to be this, Another thing you have to be able to say is the subject which was not this could be this. Although it's actually hot, water can become warm. And when it's actually warm, it can become cold. So you begin to talk about can and what is possible for something to become. And you distinguish between can and actually being something or other. Out of this analysis, which is as simple as anything that one can imagine talking about, if something from not being this comes to be that, it must 
have been possible for it to become this. It can do this because it's doing it. Huh? Okay, so out of that kind of an analysis, the notion of act and potency arise. Huh? Now, just to show you, if anyone has trouble with this, do you know the difference between being able to do something and actually doing it? Do you know the difference between being awake and being asleep, between possibly being awake and actually being awake? And you say, oh, of course I know that. Well, that's all you have to know in order to get hold of this initial use of this couplet of act and potency. But once Aristotle has that, once Thomas has it, they will turn to an analysis of something like motion. What is motion? This is one of the great questions that is asked on the first level of generality and natural knowledge as Thomas, following Aristotle, sees it. What is motion? If you looked it up in a philosophical dictionary, usually you'd find the definition invoked some synonym of motion in defining it. But what we find as the definition of motion in Thomas and Aristotle is that motion is the act of a being in potency insofar as it is in potency. You figure, good, great. I mean, if you just heard that without any forewarning, you'd figure, this is the kind of thing that philosophers say. And don't ask me how it relates to anything that might be said down at McDonald's. They just talk that way. And you've got to learn the lingo and pass the course and get the credits and so forth. Now, th that's libelous, that kind of interpretation of Thomas, as I think it is of Aristotle as well. What that definition of motion, the act of a being and potency insofar as it is isn't what he's saying is, look, if something is at point A and it's actually there and it can be at point B, it's potentially at point B. Huh? Okay. Now, when it's there, it's actually at point B and it's no longer at point A. So there's a difference between being actually someplace and potentially somewhere else and so on, and vice versa. Now, when we talk about motion, we're talking about something between those two. Huh? We're talking about the thing on the way to being at point B. And how can we explain it? Well, that's what that definition is meant to do. Motion is the act of a being in potency. The ball is actual with respect to at least this much of the realization of its capacity to be over there, but it's still in potency to that new location. So what the definition tries to do is to capture the arrow in flight, so to speak, and to give an account of what motion is in terms of these contrasting states of actuality and potentiality. And think about it, it's a use that is connected with quite ordinary uses of actual and potential, and it turns out to be a good definition of motion. What we have there is another instance of language that is secured in a very simple example. Everyone knows what that means. Of course they do. So once you've got that, then you keep the same terms for similar but dissimilar problem, and the connection in the language is a connection in the arguments as well. That, I'm saying, is something absolutely fundamental to the language of Thomas Aquinas. It's philosophical language, and as one can see, it's also the case that in theology, the same kind of dependence. Now, what is the dependence here? How can we characterize it? You've got to get difficult and remote discussions back to the palpable and the sensible. That's where our language gets its easy and original meaning. And if the knowledge of sensible things, first in obvious and general ways and then in more particular, 
if that is a presupposition of any knowledge of something that isn't a physical object, that's going to be absolutely crucial for our proofs, as I indicated with respect to the proof of motion, and, and this will be the most exalted instance of this kind of language, analogical language, in our attempts to talk or to say something meaningful about God. This is something we'll be returning to later on in these lectures, but I want to put it before you now as an indication of how terribly important this is, so that when God is talked about in philosophy, language is going to be used that was first devised to talk about the simplest and most obvious thing in our experience. Aristotle will speak of God as pure act. And if you look at what does that mean? In order to understand it, one has to see how it builds up from a series of arguments that are ultimately lodged in our ability to see the difference between actually and can, possible and actual, in something's moving from point A to point B. So this language, this is the danger. It might seem to drag God down and say he's just another thing like a physical object. And that's why one has to see that there are dissimilarities as well as similarities as one pushes this word beyond earlier uses to later and more difficult uses and ultimately philosophically in order to say something meaningful about the first cause of all. And the suggestion is what? God isn't just there for us to take a look at. Huh? God is known to us philosophically as the explainer behind the things that we have experience of, which would be inexplicable without an appeal to such a cause as he is. If there were not a prime mover, there'd be no motion at all. That's the idea. So that the hookup between these things is constant. It is a continuum uh, from the simplest matters to the most exalted. And the idea behind it again is that the appropriate object of human thinking, the connatural object of the human mind, is the nature of physical objects. So that if we are to know anything about something that is not physical, that knowledge has to be grounded in what we can know of physical objects. And that, of course, when you think about it, any proof for the existence of God will exemplify that. It is going to be truths about the world what we come then to see as his effects, which will enable us to come to some knowledge of God as a first efficient cause, a ultimate final cause, and so forth. This is the way the proofs look, but they're anchored in what? Our knowledge of sensible reality. And without that anchor, we would not have any warrant for talking about spiritual things or things apart from the physical world as God is. Huh? Okay. So this feature of philosophical language is not just a grammatical nicety. What it's meant to do is to guard philosophical language from being a jargon, huh? from just being an odd way of talking, some kind of Esperanto that you learn if you want to become a professional philosopher. Don't ask me what it means relative to what ordinary uses of the term are. This is just a different, it sounds like that, but it's equivocal, I suppose the suggestion would be. This is the philosophical use of the term. I think it's fair to say that 
Thomas would dread that kind of characterization of his language as, well, this is philosophical as opposed to what? The suggestion would be that it doesn't link up with ordinary uses of the term. And if it doesn't do that, as we indicated, it would fail as philosophical discourse. Just another kind of intimation of what we'll be talking about later on, you might think, well, this is all true of philosophy, but when you get to the faith, when you get to Christianity, how are you going to say that everything is anchored in sensible experience and so forth? Well, you're not going to say what you know about sensible experience proves the truth of the mysteries of faith. But what we're going to notice is that the way our Lord teaches is such that it pays absolute attention to our way of learning things. You think of the parable that Christ taught, the parable, most notably perhaps, of the prodigal son. Here he tells us a story about the relationship between a spendthrift child and his indulgent parent and so forth, and the way in which the father forgives even the most outrageous behavior on the part of this prodigal son. It's a nice story. It's got all the elements. Why is our Lord telling us that? He's not just trying to pass the time of day or to amuse his followers after a hot and busy day or something. He's telling them something through this story about the relationship between ourselves and the mercy of God, the inexhaustible mercy of God. And this is the way, the only way, the only way we can get hold of it. So the parables and indeed the incarnation itself is an indication that when God is telling us things about himself, he's doing it in a manner and in a mode that pays attention to our dependence on sense experience and on a language which is anchored in sense experience. This use of language that I've been going on about, as I indicated, is dubbed by Thomas the analogical use of language. And again, that's one of those terms that might sound technical to us. And if I'm right, I think Thomas would dread being suspected of some kind of technical vocabulary, meaning by a technical vocabulary, just stipulative definitions as to, I'm going to use black to mean green and green to mean purple and so forth, and just get used to that. And that's my use. That's what I mean by technical, as opposed to a kind of organic connection between sophisticated uses of a term and ordinary, common sense, generally available uses of a term. And I want to present this as characteristic of Thomas as a philosopher, that however abstract or abstruse or arcane a discussion will seem, you can usually look at it and you're going to find terms that you've seen before. And you're going to say, I wonder what they mean here if I understand earlier uses and meanings of them. And that's the point I'm making. If you start doing that, you're going to find yourself being able to track them back to the most obvious use of the term. So that when God is said to be pure act, while this is a statement which is about someone very far removed from objects which from being in this place can be in this place, and when they're here, they're actually here and they can be over there, unless this notion of actuality, of actually being in this place as opposed to that, is required, an understanding of that is required to understand the extended use of the term act or actuality in trying to express what God is. So there is this Gain. There is a great chain of being, we might say, that leads us back from these ultimately desirable and defining 
inquiries and discussions in philosophy back to the sources of the language and the sources of the knowledge on which knowledge of these later things must depend. So that it would be, I suppose, to invite misunderstanding, because this phrase has been put to a lot of different uses, if one were to say that Thomas is a philosophy anchored in common sense. But there is a sense in which that's clearly true, because philosophical discourse for him is discourse, as we've pointed out, which will be successful to the degree that it is anchored in starting points that are available to anyone, common to anyone. So common sense in that sense would seem to be, as I've just explained, it would seem to characterize adequately what Thomas does, what his practice is. Well, I was struck in reading John Paul II's Fides et Ratio to find that this sort of thing is underlined by him in a way that is very relevant, I think, to what I've been trying to say. The Holy Father in Fides et Ratio is concerned with this problem, which has been with believers from the beginning. What is the relationship between faith and reason? What is the relationship between what we can know, what anyone can know, on the one hand, and what we are asked to believe on the other? And we've seen how Thomas's work can be seen as addressing that problem as it flared up in the 13th century because of the arrival of the translations of Aristotle. And it's with us still. I mean, it's something that every believer is going to develop under the pressure of events or some issue. He's going to develop a view as to what the relationship is. And one suggestion, of course, is that there's no relationship. Over here are known truths and over here are believed truths, and there's just no traffic between them great difficulty with that is the language that seems to traffic back and forth between these two, but then one say, no, there's, call it equivocal then. There is no connection between the use of language in philosophy and in faith. Anyway, this is a recurrent problem, and the present pope, John Paul II, takes it up in this encyclical Fides et Ratio. And as he begins this, I mean, it sounds as though here's the pope, he's going to talk about philosophy. And it's as if he's worried about that being off-putting. And then he says, as we very often do when we're teaching introductions to philosophy, look, there are certain questions that no human being can fail to ask himself. There are certain questions that events, experience, just life, the questions that are thrown at us. And it's just, we ask, well, what's it all mean? Or what's the right thing to do? Is death the end? Of whether they're put in just those terms or not, these are things everyone thinks about. And most people talk about. And bull sessions of one kind or another, and not only among young people, they will turn on these sort of things. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? That's the, the most sweeping question of all, but it's the, most, it's the hardest question to dodge. Huh? So the Pope is saying that, and as I say, often we start introductory courses in philosophy that way. You may not know it, but you've been asking or pondering or implicitly or explicitly the kinds of questions that we address in philosophy. And then you use examples such as those the Pope used. What's it all mean? Is death the end? How do I know the difference between right and wrong? And so on. Now, what strikes me in that encyclical is not just that, that's not nothing, but he goes beyond that. He goes beyond that and he says something which is pretty surprising. He says, not only are there certain questions that no one can fail to ask, there are certain answers to these questions that 
people hold. And it seems to be most commonly held by people. And this is the passage that I have in mind. This is from paragraph four of that encyclical. And he writes this, John Paul II, although times change and knowledge increases, it is possible to discern a core of philosophical insight within the history of thought as a whole. Consider, for example, the principles of non-contradiction, finality, and causality, as well as the concept of the person as a free and intelligent subject with the capacity to know God, truth, and goodness. Consider those. Consider as well certain fundamental moral norms which are shared by all. These are among the indications that beyond different schools of thought, there exists a body of knowledge, not just the questions, but the answers, a body of knowledge which may be judged a kind of spiritual heritage of humanity. It is, he writes, it is as if we had come upon an implicit philosophy as a result of which we all feel they possess these principles, albeit in a general and unreflective way. That paragraph sums up what I've been trying to say in this particular lecture. And what I've tried to say about Thomas as a philosopher, what the Pope here calls implicit philosophy, that is, certain common principles of a theoretical and a practical kind, which we can count on anybody knowing, however generally and unreflectively, however implicitly we might say, these are the starting points of philosophy as Thomas Aquinas understands them. And look at what they are. Look at the ones that are mentioned in this little menu of implicit philosophy. The principle of non-contradiction. It's impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time and in the same respect. Or you can't affirm and deny the same proposition simultaneously. The principle of finality. We might say, oh, that's a real philosophy. Is it? Is it? I mean, don't we normally, in talking certainly about ourselves, as what's the point of doing that? What's the end of that particular activity? Or what's the purpose of a particular feature of an animal and so forth? Anyway, it's not all that arcane. And the idea that things are going somewhere, things have a purpose, is something that he's suggesting, yeah, most people would accept that. That a human being is free. Oh, come on, of all the problems that philosophers have argued about, it's human freedom. Well, the fact of the matter is, Thomas holds, I hold, I'd be willing to defend this claim, freedom is self-evidently true. It's self-evidently true that I'm free. The problem is try to convince someone who knows he's free that he isn't, huh? or to get over the initial obvious appeal to freedom, why did you do that, etc. holding people responsible for what they do on the assumption that they might have acted otherwise than as they did and so forth. This is what's given. And theories that this isn't true, that freedom in Schopenhauer's remark, freedom is merely the word for our ignorance of why we act necessarily as we do, or something to that effect. That's theory. That's philosophy in the bad sense of the term. I think Thomas is absolutely right. The Pope here is, in referring to something that Thomas himself would hold, that human freedom is a given. It's not something you have to prove. 
What you do in terms of argument is to show that denials of it are incoherent. They won't wash, just as denials of the principle of contradiction won't wash because they invoke what they seemingly purport to be denying. What I am suggesting here, and I'm not trying to enlist the Pope here on my side here, but I think what he's expressing here is something that could be taken to be a summary of Thomas's view of the starting point of philosophy, that there is an implicit philosophy. We can count on people knowing, however generally or confusedly, as the Pope puts it, however implicitly, I would say, we can count on them knowing certain truths of a theoretical kind and of a practical kind. If they're not explicit, they can be made explicit in terms of the easiest kinds of analysis. Now, this might seem to trivialize philosophy and say, every man a metaphysician is I'm talking about the beginnings of it. And there is nothing more crucial than seeing philosophical discourse as in warm continuity with what everyone already knows. And if you look at what Thomas has to say about principles, whether of the practical order or the theoretical order, you're going to see that what he is referring to is exactly that. Things you can count on everybody knowing. Things that once they're stated, even if someone hadn't stated them implicitly, there is the shock of recognition that this is indeed what we all hold. So that when you heard me say a moment ago, it's impossible for a thing to be and not to be at the same time, and in the same respect, that might have sounded like Peter Piper picks a peck of pickled peppers or something. But when you think about it, you say, I knew that. I knew that. And of course you did. Everybody knows it. It's not a theory. It's a truth that is in the possession, as the Holy Father says, of every human person. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.